Welcome to Bridging Worlds, Adam Art Gallery's podcast series accompanying the exhibitions Lucien Risso's Everything and Megan Dunn's The Mermaid Chronicles, 21 October to 18 December 2022. Although two distinct exhibitions, they align around similar notions of personal obsessions and private fantasies. In Arisos's Everything, the material produced by his uncle, Gerald O'Brien, was completely secret until after his death, whereas Dunn's The Mermaid Chronicles is a celebration of all things mer-people. In this episode, we join Lucien Risos in conversation with Wellington artist and writer Gregory O'Brien, no relation to Gerald, incidentally, as they discuss and try to make sense of O'Brien's life and the fantasy world he kept secret. Gerald O'Brien was like a father to Lucien Risos, yet throughout their time together, O'Brien never mentioned his lifelong creative project, which is featured in Risos' exhibition, Everything. Hey, thank you very much everyone for coming. I hope my voice is not too boomy. Bridging worlds. Yeah, I was thinking about when I got here today about a quote Henry Miller said. He said, why change the world? Change worlds. Which is an interesting statement because it's sort of like, could it be a cop-out or kind of the worst kind of escapism? Or it could actually be saying, make a new world. Don't, don't try and change this one. I think the thing that I found quite marvellous about this exhibition when I came in is it seems to me one does have one world on the wall here, which is, to me, the world of the things that informed Gerald O'Brien's life, the books, the subjects, you know, the histories, the, the fictions, the car manuals, the um, almanacs, all the stuff. To me, this was like the kind of what, what Gerald O'Brien had coming into his head on one side. And on the other hand, over here, you have the output of Gerald O'Brien, which is this kind of imaginary world, which of course is completely you know, indexable and traceable back to this wall over here. And I do think it's a very beautiful piece of curation. So, I mean, well done, Lucy, and well done, Robert Leonard. On the end wall, we have this, what I think of as almost a melting pot or a cauldron of all these images of Gerald O'Brien, images from his life, from his notebooks, from his diaries, from his artworks, from things that were written about him, a lot of things. So there, to me, you have that mixture of, I guess, the world out there and his world and this great percolating kind of hyperactive kind of um, um, restlessness and um, endlessness of the kind of playing of all the details of his life. So, yeah, I think in terms of this sort of trajectory, the show does a beautiful kind of arc from one wall to the other, both of them talking to each other, both of them kind of rhyming and having lots of the same things, but actually they're also really different in kind of fundamental ways. As a writer, I found the kind of show interesting because to me it does play to all sorts of things to do with you know, the authorial presence, you know, who, who is Lucien in this, who is Gerald in this, and that's certainly an idea that, that Robert and Lucien have both talked about themselves. Lucien was telling me the other day that um, the writer Elizabeth Knox came in the other day and was sort of walking around the show just nodding because she completely understood the, the dynamic, the creative kind of heft of the thing, the dynamism of the thing, because, I mean, as a writer, she writes fantasy, she writes imaginative literature, but also importantly as a child and a teenager, um, she was involved in imaginary games and make-believe worlds and mappings and, um, you know, creating casts of thousands, which of course is exactly what Gerald does. So I kind of thought that was an interesting thing. Elizabeth, who I'm sure would be here, but she's got to be at the tangi that my wife Jen and I are due at in about an hour's time, so we've got to have to hot-foot it out of here, but I do think in terms of that kind of literary thing, 
to me it is a very literary kind of show in that, in that lovely way that I think the visual arts can be literary, the way they can attach to things like Fernando Pessoa's Book of Disquiet, um, which is another text like Gerald Murnane that to me this exhibition brings to mind. Also Bourguet's, you know, this show is a labyrinth, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's a great celebration of disorder, but with moments of order, moments of sense. Um, so anyway, so... A bit like life. <laughs> so anyway, so I just, yeah, I thought I would say those things just to get them off my chest, just to say what I'm doing here. I'm a neighbour of Lucian's. I think that's what qualifies me for um, being here. But also I did curate an exhibition by Lucy in 2005 at the um, City Gallery, Wellington, called Where I Find Myself. And I wonder, when you look at the show, do you find yourself here or do you just get lost in this? I keep thinking the other two, almost the two, another two kind of diametrically opposed things. It's, a, it's about identity, it's about citizenship, it's about belonging, it's about family, but also it's about thousands of faces, thousands of books, thousands of newspaper clippings, um, being in the midst of a kind of an avalanche, a tumult. Was that a question? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so do you feel, does this tell um, you who you are or does this confuse the hell out of you, Lucian? There we are, there's the question. Well, <laughs> when, oh, you, when you feel it, when you're in here now. Uh, well, I think, thanks to Robert, it's feeling pretty tight, actually. It's, it doesn't feel disorganised. I think we've, uh, he's curated it so we can try to get to grips with it. You know, we've isolated quite a few things here. We've isolated my world, uh, uh, my version of Gerald. Gerald's on the left here, his version of Gerald, and that's the real world looking at Gerald too, uh, uh, in those uh, slides on the opposite wall. So there, there are three distinct things going on in here, I think. It is a labyrinth, but it's manageable if you take your time. I think uh, each one of them can be gone into and made sense of given time. Uh, there was a um, review and stuff, I've forgotten who wrote it the other day, felt that the uh, slides were ticking over too fast to make sense of. But I don't think you go to an exhibition to do research. I think you go to an exhibition to get a certain feeling about something which may kick you off into going into other directions later on. But this is not the de definitive information on Gerald in this exhibition. It may be in the books, uh, in the three box set I have out there, that is literally every page of anything readable that he hoarded, I've scanned. And it goes into thousands and thousands of pages of information. Again, anything's manageable. I think, given yeah. time. I imagine everyone here does know the story of Gerald O'Brien. Eh? We don't need to go back and say Labour politician, uh, public figure. I think uh, most of you, I think, probably, uh, we don't need to sketch it in too much. So, I think they're all younger. So we all had <laughs> a, significant, yeah, so a significant, I guess, member of Lucian's family with a significant public life. But I guess your big, I suppose, moment of realisation was when you realised that there was this endless... I, I kind of think of it as being a continuation of childhood, this thing where he actually um, kept the, the, the newspaper clippings on the end wall or an update of the newspapers he did when he was a child, which would have himself in them. His, um, um, you know, doing the, cut, the cutouts, <coughs> which is usually something, I guess, it's usually a girl thing, at least when I was a <laughs> young boy, it was girls that would get cutouts and pullouts and little, you know, little things like that perhaps slightly more than boys, but it's a childhood thing to do model soldiers, model okay, well, replicas, right. um, chess War pieces. War games? War games, yeah, all that stuff. Um, 
but he's someone that in, in a way did have a kind of a, a childhood that sort of ran through his adult life as a critique of his adult life or as a part of it, necessary part of it. What do you reckon? You're referring to this alternative, yeah, this yeah. invented world why, why, here. When the he invented was a Labour world, MP, yeah. he might have been sitting in his, on his bench, you know, in, in Parliament, drawing. You know, what was he? Was he? Was it his way of being there, or his way of? Was it his way of changing the world, or of changing worlds? Look, I think it's different at the beginning and, and from here on. Somehow, at the beginning, he seems to have sorted it out all out, I'd say, by early 20s, the whole structure, the whole thing, and then he's just refining it and making it more sophisticated in some way as he goes further and further on. So that's his imaginative, imaginative rejigging of the world as it is, so different countries, different power systems, or, or do you think it's a continuation? Is it, is it fantasy or is it real? I suppose maybe that's another that's the question. <laughs> I'm not too sure where to go with that question. I mean, he's invented, he's invented a world here, countries, but he's, he's done it with such, uh, in such detail. I mean, you know, people have, have you people seen the TV series, The Wire, where you know, the drug trade is approached from this angle, from the journalist's angle, from the politician's angle, from the police angle, from the drug dealer's angle. He's seeing the same thing from, from you know, slivers. Uh, Gerald has seen, by the age of 20 or so, uh, from the journalist's angle, from the commander's angle, from the historian's angle, and documenting the wars and stuff. He's seen the same thing from different aspects. And then he's just refining it and adding to it. I mean, you're getting to the ridiculous stage where he seems as though he's even running elections to get some of these people elected into a fantasy parliament, you know? Mm. So, uh, I think he saw the whole picture pretty early on, and that's pretty astonishing. That's more astonishing to me, even though these figures are just so gorgeous and sophisticated. Do you think he wanted the world to be a different place, though? Because I'm just sort of interested, like, we have with the early things where he has, he has imagined colonies of countries, he has imagined wars. He writes, you know, um, um, you know almost a kind of a, an alternative Second World War involving countries that didn't exist then, that yeah, sort of thing. Yeah. Is it a kind of escapism, or do you think it is something that's him grappling with? human nature or who he, who he is or whatever? Well, there's an interesting contrast between this and his peace movement days mm. because that's, the, that's the, the, you know, the flip side of war mm. is how much he was trying to do to promote peace in the world and justice, mm. Elgin Marbles being returned, so on. You know. There's so much justice and trying to do good in the world here, I feel. And it's... The, the man... The man is actually really, really decent and good at his core, and he spread himself as far as he can in so many areas he can to, to try to change a world that he didn't like, maybe. Uh, I mean, I, just before he died, I, I asked him, how do you feel, because it was around Trump time also, you know, uh, getting into power, how do you feel that all the stuff you're doing to try to make the world a better place, how do you feel that you can see it all you know, being demolished and you know, taken apart around you? And he, his, his thought for a tiny bit of a while, then he replied, it doesn't stop you from wanting to try to still make it better, even though you can see it happening, being demolished around you. you know? I thought that was a brilliant answer. Just, yes. That's just kept him working and working for the better. Doesn't matter, don't be discouraged. That's, that's the sort of person he was. Did a huge amount of good for others. I'm interested, given that my name's Greg O'Brien and his name's Gerald O'Brien, 
I'm interested in his attitude to Irishness, but also his ancestry, because it's interesting in the books, but also some of the material here. He does almost seem to be doing like family tree things and whakapapas and, you know, they're, they're things to do with arrangements of generals and parliaments and all that sort of thing. So obviously part of his mind seized upon that sort of thing. But I'm kind of interested, because then it doesn't seem like the Irishness is a few Irish books there, quite a modest amount, I would have oh, to say. Really? You know, okay. um, There are probably more books about Greece yeah, than about yeah, Ireland. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So he wasn't... Did he have a... I mean, I'm not, I'm not aware of him having any particular relationship to, to the clan, to yeah. the O'Brien clan. Uh, so. Well, <laughs> he, he did. It's just that he had married into a Greek-Romanian family. Oh, no, and, they swamped and, him. And they just swamped him, yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> Very loud, okay, okay, very well. noisy. Uh, there wasn't enough room for O'Brien's and, uh, and uh, our lot, the Philippedias's, just a couple of generations, around the same dinner table. In fact, uh, my partner Rosemary re remarked on that. How come we didn't have much more to do with the Irish side of the family? But uh, it's just that our Greek side was so large and so alive. The dinner tables, you know, and the, the birthdays, the New Year's, the, they were very noisy. There wasn't no room for anything else. Really, but uh, he did. I mean, he had a sister, two brothers, one older brother who died young, I think, from cancer, who s set up the first sports magazine in New, in New Zealand history, Sports Digest. Brian Brian O'Brien. He was also a. Uh, oh yes, he appears in one of the books. Yeah, yeah Brian O'Brien. Yeah, 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 and he you know, he's a boxing expert, and uh, he died young. Uh, He's, uh, the, the magazine itself, he didn't have any writers for it, but he it wrote under pseudonyms. You know, <laughs> there were four or five articles, different names are all him, you know. Den uh, Philip Dennis, his two sons, Phil O'Brien and Dennis O'Brien from oh, okay. Slow Boat. That's, oh, you know, yeah, got them, so, yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, the Irish side got together often, and Gerald did peel away at times and, yeah. and refer, but the two clans never really met. But he was into his side, for sure. Yeah. But, then, but it's interesting, because he, he was, to me, when I look at this, a lot of it does feel very um, uh, middle European or, you know... Um, or, you know um, I think it's doing the whole uh, world in there. Southeast Asia, South yeah. America, you can see all the, you know, ethnicities or whatever. But it's not the island mentality, so it's not Ireland or New Zealand. It's more like a kind of a weird... And same with his maps. They're full of um, continental kind of, you know, movement, movements and um, borders and all that sort of thing, I think. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, you've got real names and imaginary places. You've got, you've got an island called Nigeria, I think, and so on. I think it's, it's just universal. I, to me, it's, it's just the whole world here. Yeah. If you look through every, every one of these, mm. especially the names on the back, it goes from all the Asian countries, you know, yeah, Japan, yeah. China, you know, et cetera, all the way through to, you know, um, Middle Eastern countries, you know, Turkish prime ministers, Turkish names mm. in there, and so on, Indian names. You know. He's done the whole world there. Yeah. He's, he's made sure he's covered it all. Totally agree. One thing, it is interesting though, the men are often all of a certain age. I think Kim Hill sort of brought this up in terms of there not being a lot of women in the thing. Yeah. But I'm kind of interested because to me, I look at them and I almost feel even though they are ethnically quite mixed up, I get the feeling they're all kind of weirdly like self-portraits of himself. I mean, there is a kind of a, um, you know, looking in the show, I get such a, even the bookshelves actually are kind of self-portraits in a sense, aren't they? But here I do get a sense that... Um, He's sort of defining himself. Most of the people are like politicians, captains of industry or the military, um, um, people in formal evening attire. Interestingly, lots of the poses are very like poses from newspaper journalism, photojournalism rather than portrait photos. 
so he's got the queen, there's a queen, there's a yeah. good cameo from the, the crown there, yeah, yeah. Um, and she's obviously the garden yeah. lady looking over her shoulder. That's right, well the, the reason you don't get bored with this, I certainly don't, is that every figure seems to be an individual, and that's not only in its incredible painting of its face, but in its attitude. So you must have, there must be references to each one of these figures somewhere in a newspaper, in a magazine. Mm. I've yet to find even one. And yet they must be, because they're too varied. You know, some of these people are walking, caught in walking. Some of them are caught in standing still, weight on one leg or the other. They're not something you think up, but something that you observe. Yeah. Yeah. I do think they're projections of the self. There aren't a lot of people in other professions or working people. There are sports people and muscle men early on, and soldiers. So there's soldiers early on. But it is a kind of a society of peers who to me almost sort of reflect, maybe they're reflecting sort of um, the, the virtues of statesmanship or statespersonship or... I think they're reflecting the world as it was in his day. That's why I initially called the whole project, and the whole project only was the, the invented world. That's what I started. I originally called that a man of his time, because it seems to me that a kid growing up, born in 1925, 26, whenever he was, growing up with the Second World War brewing, it's bound to leave a very strong impression reading the newspapers of the time, you know, aping them in his own, and maybe even starting the Second World War before the real one even started in his own journals and his mm. own histories, yeah. So I think he was reflecting the world as it fermented inside him, I yeah, think. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think there is the implication that all these figures are involved in a conversation with one another, that they may be uh, involved in negotiations and diplomacy and it's it is at that level isn't it where yeah, 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 where the, you yeah. know they, they occupy that and there's, then there's other people that aren't actually in view mm. yeah mm. it's a bit like an apex summit when they have those sort of staged um staged photo opportunities isn't it lucian just to jump sideways from it i mean as everyone here will know i mean lucian spent his entire working life just about as a as a violinist in the new zealand symphony orchestra and I'm kind of interested in this, there is an impulse, it seems to me, amongst some classical players and composers to almost obsessively mine another field. And I'm thinking a bit beyond Gerald O'Brien now to think of you in terms of your earlier archival kind of projects, you know, to do with your own family and to do with Cardia Bresson and even your work in the society at large. Um, I mean, I was thinking about people like um, John Cage, you know, who also became a, spent a lot of time digging up mushrooms, became yeah, a mushroom obsessive. Yeah. And that was almost like to counterbalance the music, the musical discipline, or to find another discipline. Um, someone like the musicologist Harry Smith, who collected you know, everything, um, who did a lot of the American folk music archive, huge job, bigger than your life could ever could hold. But then he also collected um, you know, pieces of string. He collected Ukrainian Easter eggs. He collected paper airplanes and paper darts. I've got books about them. Interesting, sort of like a flip side. Olivia Messiaen was a bird obsessive. You know, he was a twitcher, bird spotter, you know, as well as spending <laughs> yeah, time like at the um, Steinway. Nabokov, butterfly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, yeah, yeah, butterflies yeah, and Nabokov. Yeah, yeah. I'm kind of interested in this because I do, I do know, I remember when I curated that show 17 years ago of your work, being very drawn to this, going into your house and seeing, um, you, know, you know, I can hear you play a Bach partita and you can do a very acceptable, wondrous, <laughs> magical job of it, I have no doubt. But then also the, the art making at that time was to do with rubbings of things on the walls. You know, you'd get pieces of paper and pencils and crayons and do rubbings of pieces of toast, of the door handle, of the toaster, of, um, 
So, I mean, what's that, what's that about? Just probably heading towards you, know, you. don't worry too much about Gerald O'Brien. We'll never, we'll never fathom him. But in terms of your impulse, I mean, clearly you've got the discipline, the, the personal history to be in the classical music world, which is very rigorous. I've got to stop you right there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's a myth. <laughs> it is a disciplined life, but uh, I think my, you did me too much justice in thinking that I was disciplined in my classical music life. I mean, uh, I've, I've enjoyed it, and there is discipline required. There's no doubt about it. I admire every one of those players that I played with, but uh, yeah, I'm, I was okay. I did okay. Uh, every time I did an art project, Greg, you might, you might see connections, but in a strange sort of a way, I'm starting from scratch. I feel I'm starting from scratch. I haven't got anything worked out. I'm fumbling at the very beginning, and I'm just trying to work my way through which way this goes. It's happened with every project. You've got a few things there. Oh, yeah, well, I, I mean, I've built up this, uh, my relationship with Cartier-Bresson yeah, you've got yeah. there. That there is a, that there's sort of a meditation on about eight or nine years worth of, after I gave up photography and, and never touched the camera for about 20 years, I was still in it because I was still thinking about it and I was doing drawings and paintings about Cartier-Bresson rather than photographs. And, uh, and that's my approaching my problems regarding my, he was like my, um, like everybody's sort of godfather, you know, you wanted to be like Cartier-Bresson, but you couldn't, and you wanted to do also go your own way in life, but you can't shake him off. It's like your, like your dad, you know? You well, that's like Gerald yeah. O'Brien too, yeah. who you said was like your dad. Yeah. So I do think that's a, that is a thing. You do, you do make art out of a, a sense of wanting to work out how on earth you fit in this, this thing that's a very emotional thing, but you're actually trying to work out where you are in the world. That book you did, A Man Walks Into a Bar, to me is an interesting one, because that's sort of like trying to work out where you stand in terms of New Zealand, pop, New Zealand everyday culture at that time. Do you belong in the car outside or do you belong in the bar? A Man Walks Into a Bar is, sounds like the title of a Frank Sargison story. You're kind of locating what you do in that kind of very common shared experience. But uh, to me, the whole thing that that's sort of marvellously, achingly apparent, Lucian, is that you're actually just trying to work out what room am I in, where am I, you know? You yeah, know. well, I'm, I'm, I've got the luxury of never having to sell anything because I have a real job and, <laughs> and I can take my time. Uh, man walks out of a bar, started off in 1978. I didn't print it till 2011. And I had quite a few years there uh, near at the end where Damien, we were, try, we were trying to get grants and kept on failing to get grants and it kept on putting the book back. And in that year or two, I was refining the book even more, even more. It started out as one thing, you know, my, my impressions of what I thought Robert Frank was. And I was wildly off because by the time I matured, I saw what the book was really about. And, uh, and a man walks out of a bar in a strange sort of a way, it's not, a, it's not only about the Muldoon years, which it is, but it's also about my family, I think, and about families in general. We had uh, you know, three alcoholic uncles, stepfather and father alcoholic. You, know, you, know, you, you wonder where these strands come from, but they do. Yeah. And what I'm trying to say is every work I do seems to be personal. Mm. Uh, and and uh, otherwise it wouldn't have a reason for starting. I'm not a, I don't churn out stuff because I have to, only because I need to sometimes, you know, the thing's sort of aching there and, you know, smouldering and, mm. uh, and then the thing kicks off. 
Gerald stuff was like that. Too. I started off the Gerald project. I thought I'd make a you know a reasonable sized book because you know he demands it. There's so much stuff. But then it was pathetic uh, that 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 book was, seemed nothing like anywhere near the size it should be compared to the information I was getting. And uh, also the photographs. That I started off taking documentary photographs of the house after he died, and I felt that wasn't enough. There needed to be something else, and that's what got me scanning. Uh, trying to, I'm trying to eliminate myself from the process. That's what I'm trying to say, I think, and try to get a, a pure connection between the subject and the work somehow. So, because you called the show everything, which is like you trying to say that you didn't select things, you just put everything in yeah. it. Which, of course, is not true, because you did, I mean, you did arrange and you had to gather things together and you had to photograph those four bookshelves. Yeah, and I catalogued uh, in, a, in a very uh, amateurish way, yeah. and I'm, I'm, I'm admitting it. I'm not a librarian. You know, there's a yeah. book on ties, a book on diaries, you know, just a magazine, I mean. So, that, that, that seemed to be haphazard and random. But that, this was what was coming out at me at various times. Oh, hell, there's a cupboard with 110 ties in it. What do I, you know, got to do something <laughs> about that. It's a, that's social history on its own, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. and so on. I wasn't selecting. I was just, I was just uh, doing an Edward Snowden, I, you know. Probably. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah. So you, you, with, with, with all your photography and your archival art, I mean, it is emotionally driven, big time. That to me seems very evident from the word go. Um, but it's not emotive, you don't like, it's not expressionism, it's not gushy, you do find that you sit back. I think this is the archivist thing, this is the Harry Smith thing too, you know, the kind of, um, you actually do quite like sitting, pulling the chair back from the desk and surveying the materials and finding a viable way of presenting them, I guess. Well, there's nothing more pure than the original thing, you know. I mean, uh, Walker Evans took photographs all his life, but then somewhere near the end of his life started to collect the objects themselves rather than take photographs of them. He'd pull up his car next to a, you know, bullet-ridden sign on a highway and detach it from the post and take it home and put it on his wall. You know, that, you, look, actually, that reminds me. I started off in the 70s, even before or around the time of A Man Walks Out of a Bar documentary, where I stripped every motel room I went into, of anything that could be taken away that was legal. <laughs> so, you know, in those days there was uh, drawer linings and, you know, I've got, I've got the inside of a drawer out of Thai Happy, for instance, or, <laughs> or I stopped short of taking the, you know, the fire escape and the fire. So, but everything else, doilies, uh, you know, finished toilets, oh, the, the things that go on top of the toilets, you know, that, that's, that diagonal strip, you know, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. You know and, you know, that, I, made a whole booklet of that sort of thing also. You Have know, you still got it all? Uh, are you a hoarder? That's probably the next <laughs> question. Say, I mean, are you cut of the same Will somebody do Gerald? this to me? No, um, no, they, no, they won't because I've... No, I'm not a hoarder. Uh, every few years I chuck stuff out. Mm. And so I would never be able to do anything. I mean, this is a rare thing that somebody has kept everything everything from infancy mm. to, I mean, there might be gaps missing, but I don't know where that, uh, sorry, there may be gaps in this collection, but I don't know where they are and why they're not there. Mm. And uh, mm. yeah, but you wouldn't be able to do that with me or anybody else I know. Except you've got, every, everything is now in your custody, is that correct? I mean, yeah. all Gerald's Yeah, I've got about, about 40 shopping bags, Hessian shopping bags in there. And is it all in your house, is that, is that where it yeah, resides yeah. presently? At the moment, all yeah, the but we can do everything. 
Did yeah, you, but he had the lot. So you didn't edit the ties, or you didn't do No, I've got, them, I've, I've got the ties. <laughs> if they come back into fashion. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, is this a blessing or a curse? Uh, was it, well, it was a blessing because I had planned on retiring around about lockdown anyway. And uh, it was, for me, it was, it was, I was quite, I mean, other than being emotional that somebody as close to me as Gerald had died, uh, that had happened to me. But uh, at the same time, I was just, it was wonderful to work away at something. So in that way, it was a blessing. Uh, and that I immersed myself in this world and I began to know more about Gerald than I ever knew when he was alive. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, just from the sheer um, keeping busy after retirement, <laughs> from that low bar, uh, yeah, it's been a, yeah, yeah. There's a quote that you put in, in the book about um, you know, my, relation, my relationship with Cardia Bresson where you say, Henri Cartier Bresson and I had to resolve our relationship in order to move on. So you did that body of work, made the book, um, essentially moved on. So this Will exhibition here, does this mean that you've resolved your relationship with Gerald and you can move on? Or where does it leave you? Yeah, I think I, think I feel since I, I knew that he was wanting to write an autobiography but never got around to it. Uh, and. Before he died, he asked me to contact certain people with certain letters, certain journalists, certain authors with connections. Uh, and he wasn't, he wasn't able to do it in his time. And uh, I feel I'm able to do it for him now, just, just as a favor back again. For I mean, I'm aware that I wouldn't be the person I am if it wasn't for what he put into me from childhood onwards, really. All the art, all the music. I owe everything to him, really. Going to concerts as a toddler, sitting in the front row watching the great pianists and violinists. Mm. Uh, you know, that was stimulating. Yeah. And, and has given me a lifetime's worth of something to think about, things to think about. Mm. Yeah, and to enjoy and to love all the beautiful things in life. It's purely to him that I owe all that, really. Yeah. yeah. But this is not what the show's about. <laughs> Maybe on a deeper level it is, but not on the surface. Just on the, on the, on the absolutely superficial surface, it's an art project. Hmm. Quite clearly, I've realized it, it was going in that direction somewhere along the line. But you know, who knows? Who, but what keeps something like this going for three years? That's the, that's the question, I think. And that is maybe some deep emotional something that drives you, you know, mm. and I don't, you know, I don't want to be an amateur psychologist, but, you know, you can talk about grief if you want, and it's a very powerful thing, and, and it gives us a big space to, to move into, to, to think, to rummage around, and, you know, mm. and think surface. Yeah. 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 I think back when I look back to remember you had the earlier show and there were a couple of these photographs at photo space and then you also had the, a number of the books there yeah. on the table. So in a way, I mean, to me, the dynamic of this show is, is wonderfully sort of um, um, expanded and altered and all that. Yeah. But does to me probably think, is, is there another iteration or is there, or is there a book? Or is that too problematic? Uh, well, book book would, have to, would it have to be a biography of him or would it not have to be a biography of him? How on earth is that ever going to work? You know? Well, this is... It's, even though I'm in here somewhere, this is not an interpretation as far as I see it. It's, it's, his, it's him talking about himself because it's purely 
There's nothing here that's not his. It's not photographs from my collection of the room, mm. it's, you know, or have his cars. This is every one of these objects is his. So, uh, and if you did a book, that means you'd have to reduce the, the content by a huge amount because what we've got out there is, you know, something that's uh, a meter long, I think, yeah. 66 magazines worth of information. Uninter not interpreted, that's the mm. point, I think, unless somebody can get them through the cracks there and tell me what I'm actually doing because I don't understand it. When you first showed me some of this material, I remember though thinking though that, I get it, and I'm not disagreeing with you that this is Gerald O'Brien's world, but it seemed to me it was a world within a world within a world within a world situation where you probably had a, world, a childhood world of Gerald O'Brien, um, which then was contained within his adult world. Yeah. And there are probably many shells to that one in terms of his public life and the phases of his life and the end of his life. So there's Gerald as the world yeah. with his own childhood to me running away like a little nuclear reactor inside the material. Yeah. Um, then you inherit this thing and all the emotional givens and um, motivators, if you like, that you've described. And so it's, you're the world, now you're the, he's within your world, given that you're controlling this to some degree. And then to me, probably obviously here, then the world that's in now is Robert Leonard's exhibition here at the Adam Art Gallery, yeah. which is the world that now contains you, which you contain him, and he contains himself as a child. Yeah. And um, yeah, to me, that's how I think of it. I think of it, it's like a, it's like a Venn diagram or whatever, yeah, with everything yeah. inside. Or like, like the Russian dolls, you know. Um, but, it, but that sort of happens in life, doesn't it? Anyway, things attach themselves to something, and then other things attach themselves to those things, and so on. <laughs> you know what I mean? It, yeah. it just feels like real life anyway to me. It's nothing outstanding. It's just, it's just life, I don't know. Mm. I, I'm not, I don't know if I'm trying to underplay it or... Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, um, thank you very much, Greg, for all, thank the, you. Thanks, all the time you put thanks, into this. Thanks for coming. <laughs> thanks, Greg. Thank you. Visit the Adam Art Gallery at Victoria University of Wellington, Te Heranga Waka, or online at www.adamartgallery.nz.